Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. Since 2010, the most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from top experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on the radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome back here live to The Nonprofit Coach. We're just coming back off from our summer holiday here in uh, the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, and uh, I hope that everyone had a wonderful summer. We've got a very big show uh, for you uh, here today. As the announcer said, uh, you can uh, join us uh, over in the chat room uh, and ask questions there. You can email me your questions at tedhart at tedhart.com. We are also simulcasting over on Facebook Live today, so you can find us at facebook.com forward slash tedhart. And as always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. Over here, fresh off from summer break, uh, over on uh, page one news, we have uh, Aaron Nyland Wasaki, uh, who is here with us uh, with the Foundation Center Minute. Aaron, welcome to the Nonprofit Coach. Thanks so much for having me, Ted. Aaron, it's great to have you with us, and I know the Foundation Center is always very busy helping uh, foundations and nonprofits and donors succeed. Uh, what's coming up this fall? Yeah, so I actually want to talk about three things today. Uh, Philanthropy's role in the relief effort around the devastation caused by hurricanes in the Atlantic over the last few weeks, uh, a new initiative for open agriculture funding, and research on giving by community foundations that has come out this summer and will be coming out uh, later this week, too. Um, So actually, let's start with the hurricane, since both Harvey and Irma have been so destructive in recent weeks. Uh, Foundation Center has partnered with the Center for Disaster Philanthropy for several years to release annual research called the State of Disaster Philanthropy. And this can be found at disasterphilanthropy.foundationcenter.org. It includes a dashboard with giving data, a research report with key findings, and a funding map. And here at Foundation Center, our colleagues have also been tracking giving pledges related to Harvey Relief and Recovery. Uh, Thanks to their efforts, we're able to provide some good detail on nearly 189 million in corporate pledges and commitments, more than 58 million in foundation contributions, over 9 million from public charities, and more than 28 million from celebrities, sports figures, and wealthy individuals, uh, for a total as of September 9th of almost 285 million pledged or committed to Harvey Relief and Recovery 
by private individuals in the private sector. Um, so it's very impressive. Um, while we realize we haven't captured every dollar committed to relief and recovery efforts, this data, along with data on philanthropy around Hurricane Irma, will make its way to the funding map um, at disasterphilanthropy.foundationcenter.org just as soon as it's complete and cleaned. Um, and for the latest, we actually have a series of blog posts with data tables on our philanthropic blog at pndblog.typepad.com. We've also received several calls from affected organizations needing funds, and while Foundation Center doesn't directly connect nonprofits with foundations, our database foundation directory online is the most comprehensive place to research funders and is available for free at local funding information network locations. In Houston, this is the Houston Public Library and the United Way of Greater Houston. For other locations, you can visit foundationcenter.org slash findus, or you can connect with our partners at the Center for Disaster Philanthropy. They're actually having a webinar this Thursday, September 14th, uh, with the Council on Foundations, the Southeastern Council on Foundations, along with a panel of funders and responding relief organizations to discuss how to address recovery. Um, you can check that out at disasterphilanthropy.org. Um, and again, our hearts just go out to all of those affected by these devastating storms. Terrific. Well, we are posting uh, these links over on Facebook along with our show, uh, posting those live so people who are following us at facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart uh, can pick up uh, all of these links, including the information about the Harvey relief uh, effort, and as you mentioned, the Hurricane Irma relief support will be posted soon. Yep. Yep. Um, and on a lighter note, uh, the initiative for open agriculture funding has been moving along quite well this summer. Um, agriculture is vital to achieving goals of reducing poverty and hunger. As we all know, um, there are a lot of questions funders ought to ask before starting agriculture-specific interventions. But one of those questions is, who else is investing in these particular value chains and how? Uh, led by Interaction, the initiative for open agriculture funding supports efforts to end hunger and food insecurity by ensuring organizations have the timely, comprehensive, and comparable information they need to make smarter agriculture investments. The initiative aims to foster better quality data using a common language, which is the International Aid Transparency Initiative, or IATI, data standard, and ultimately ensure that everyone working in this space can make smarter decisions about how to direct their resources based on the same information. For our part of this and, initiative, and Aaron, we've opened... Oh, yep. Aaron, if I could just ask a question. Did you say that sure. that's uh, uh, connect with interaction? Yep, interaction. Okay. And it, uh, the, so the initiative lives on their website, and we can... Well. Yep, perfect. We're posting that link And we can right also now. tweet yep. these out after the show, too. <laughs> okay, terrific. Um, so for our part of that initiative, uh, we've opened our comprehensive data on foundation grants for international agriculture and food security activities, uh, representing about $4.3 billion worth of grants from nearly 1,900 funders to more than 3,000 organizations around the world. It's published to the IATI registry, also through a new map that we created, which we'll also tweet a link to you after the show since it's a little bit long. Um, we also made a really cool new open source agriculture autocoder to make describing and aligning existing work much easier. And you can request a beta invite to that by emailing me at enw at foundationcenter.org. And finally, we've been engaged in lots of new research on community foundations over the summer. We're coming out with a report this week, actually, about the infrastructure that exists for U.S. community foundations and where there are gaps. Um, you can check our Twitter feed, which is at FDN Center, to download it hot off the presses in the next few days when we announce it. Uh, we also released our annual Columbus survey with benchmarking and trends for U.S. community foundations earlier in the summer. It has an interactive data dashboard for the first time ever, which is super exciting. It makes the data way more fun to explore. Um, you can visit right. columbussurvey.cfinsights.org to check that out. Um, and there's also a recorded webinar on there, too, if you're interested in learning more that was hosted by our CF Insights team. Um, and finally, the last thing is we released a fascinating reports on, report on international grant making by community foundations this summer. Um, they're giving more internationally than you think. So you can find that and other globally targeted resources at our new global page, um, foundationcenter.org global. And that's our update for today. Terrific. Well, that's uh, that's a lot of updates. I think I <laughs> caught most of the uh, uh, the, the links. Um, and uh, uh, you, as you said, you'll be uh, tweeting out anything that uh, that I missed. Uh, but yep, certainly uh, giving 
giving lots of uh, new information about the work of the Foundation Center. So it sounds like you folks did not take the summer off, and you were plenty <laughs> no. busy uh, putting all we're of these very, uh, very busy. all sports uh, uh, together. Always a pleasure to have the Foundation Center here providing us with uh, lots of data, lots of information on how organizations can connect, how they can share data, and how they can succeed in their fundraising and work with donors. So, uh, Aaron, Nyland, Wisaki, uh, great to have you here on the show. Uh, welcome back from summer. Hopefully, you'll get a little bit of a break at some point, and we'll have yeah. you uh, in the Foundation Center uh, back here uh, on the Nonprofit Coach uh, next month. Uh, great to great. have you here. Thank you so All much right. for having us. <laughs> Take, Take care. care. Thank you. Bye. Uh, and with that, uh, we do have uh, one other uh, update uh, for you. Uh, the people-to-people -people fundraising LinkedIn group that we host uh, here with the uh, Nonprofit Coach Radio Show now has 3,145 members. Uh, again, that's hosted uh, by LinkedIn, and we're uh, posting over at facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart. Uh, the link to that uh, uh, community over at uh, on LinkedIn uh, that you can find, uh, and we hope that you will join us. And uh, the uh, 3,145 members of that group, or you can go into LinkedIn groups and search for our group, which is People to People Fundraising. So uh, with that, it is time to head on over to page two. Every year here on The Nonprofit Coach, we have a real treat, uh, a true leader in our field. Penelope Burke is with us today. Uh, I'm thrilled that she's uh, leading off our fall series here on The Nonprofit Coach. Uh, Penelope serves as the president of Cygnus Applied Research. She's an author, researcher, and mentor uh, celebrated for some of the most important innovations uh, and research in modern-day fundraising. In 2000, Penelope's group introduced the not-for-profit industry to the concept of donor-centered fundraising, transforming the way the sector communicates with donors and bringing fundraising in line with donors' needs. Then in, uh, on June 14, 2003, uh, was the day that Penelope's first and now famous book, Donor-Centered Fundraising, was published. Uh, she has gone on to now uh, be publishing uh, the Donor Burke Survey, which is, of course, uh, the topic of our conversation today because each year nonprofit organizations have an opportunity to truly learn uh, from donors, and donors speak through uh, Penelope's uh, research and the donor, uh, the Burke Donor Survey. So, Penelope, um, uh, suffice it to say that you are sort of the donor whisperer. <laughs> I, I happily show. take that title, Ted. That would be pretty exciting. <laughs> well, I, I hope all of our listeners uh, here, both on Facebook and on our podcast, which can be found at uh, tedhart.com, uh, use this as an opportunity to really prepare for the biggest fundraising season of the year, which, of course, is the fall and the holiday season, um, and to get the messaging right by understanding through your research what's on the mind of donors, uh, what they care about, and what they, how they want really to be uh, treated as the supporters of nonprofit organizations. So uh, let, let's start off with um, what is the Burke Donor Survey? Um, you always ask donors to look ahead and tell uh, how they are going to give over the next year. Um, what have we learned about uh, donors um, starting off with what is the, the Burke Donor Survey? What's sort of the theory behind what you're trying to accomplish? So, Ted, this is an annual survey of a lot of donors. So this year, 14,000 Americans participated, and we ran a parallel study in Canada at the same time with 6,000 more donors. So that's a lot of people in a single so survey. So 14,000, let me just get this right because I want to, uh, make sure that uh, we we post this uh, information correctly. So, 14,000 Americans surveyed. Uh, Americans uh, were surveyed, and 6,000 Canadians. Yes, that's right. Okay, go go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. And we did this survey uh, between the end of February and mid-April. So it captures 
uh, year-end giving from the previous year, especially post-election giving, and giving in the beginning of 2017. Uh, One of the more interesting things we do is we ask donors to look ahead at the next year and tell us how they are going to give. And speculative questions like that are are risky in research studies because, of course, people could say anything, um, and they may not know what they're planning to do. But when we look back at what donors say they will do and review that a a year later, we find that what donors plan to do it comes out within 5% of what actually happens. So they seem to be able to predict yeah, you have the luxury of, of this being longitudinal now because you've been doing this for many years, so you're able That's to right. sort of test results year after year. Yeah, we have nine consecutive years of research, and it's fascinating to see the changing trends among donors, especially at different age groups. Um, that's mm-hmm. where the really huge differences are in giving. Mm-hmm. So, in in uh, so you've got all this data. You've asked all these donors um, again as as our official sort of donor whisperer in the nonprofit uh, sector. Uh, what are donors whispering in your ear? What what are you, what are you learning about donors that we need to know about? Well, it's fascinating. So first, if we look ahead at what donors say they're planning to do this year. of them say they intend to give more than they gave last year, and last year was a record year. So uh, I've never seen the numbers so high on what donors intend to do. And if we split that by age, the youngest donors in our survey, donors under the age of 35, are even more ambitious about their giving. And over 52% of them say they are going to give more this year. Uh, Now, major gifts officers and directors of development will be uh, further encouraged because when we look at the most generous donors in the survey, so we divide them into two groups, the group that gave more than $10,000 to charitable causes last year and the group who gave less than that. And among the smaller group who gave more, 29% of that group say they're still going to give even more this year than they gave last so that is very encouraging. There's, you know, it's interesting for all the money that Americans uh, give to charitable causes every year. I think last year Giving USA recorded that in 2016 Americans gave, uh, what was it, $290 billion to charity, and still there's more money out there. Uh, one of my favorite questions is that uh, we ask, last year, did you give all that you could, or would you say you left money on the table? And uh, 38% of donors in the survey said, nope, we could have given more. And then when I looked at, again, those generous donors who gave most of the money, um, 33% of them, one in three, said, no, they still could have given more, even though they gave that generously. So well, it's quite that's fascinating. That's a powerful number. I, I mean, you literally have my listeners drooling at this point at the thought yep. of more than a third of their donors um, is saying that they have more money they can give. So, so what what's missing in that uh, equation? Why did they not give more? And how can my listeners tap into thirty-eight uh, percent of their donor base who are saying, "Yeah, we could give more than we do." but we're holding back. And I'm fascinated by that, why donors hold back when they actually have the money now. So we're not talking about donors speculating about when their ship might come in, and they'll be more generous then. They're talking about money they have right now. And the other side of that, I'll answer that question in a second, but the, the sort of companion series of questions we ask is the importance of philanthropy to donors, where it sits in donors' lives among the things that are most important to them, like family and career and faith. And it never comes lower than third on a list of things that are vitally important to them and which define their character as Americans or Canadians. So uh, they want to give, and they want to give as generously as possible. So why would they hold back if that's the case? And uh, there are two critical reasons 
why donors are holding back. And these numbers are rising every year, and donors are becoming more frustrated because they're not getting these two problems resolved. Number one is that they want every gift they make, regardless of its value and regardless of how long they've been a donor to a cause, assigned to a specific program or project or area not just given to the organization as a whole. They don't want their money going into the general fund with no reporting on it. Uh, they want it going somewhere specific because that allows them to understand what this organization is accomplishing. And they want to so report let's, back let's stop right as there well. Because that's one of two important takeaways. But I, but I think a vital takeaway for a lot of our listeners because, of course, a lot of organizations, what they prefer is to not have strings attached. They want it to be yes. general money that they can direct where, they, where they'd like to, to go. And, and the key here is, is that by doing that, you're actually signaling to the donor that, for them to give less. And that, that if you can, as an organization, further define how that money is going to be used, the more specific that you can be, the more likely it is that donors will feel connected to that giving and may give more. Is that the outcome? Yes, is that's that correct. a reasonable that is, resolution? Yeah. Yep, that's absolutely yeah. correct. And I want to clarify one thing which is often misunderstood. This does not mean that donors can march into your organization and say, I want you to do X, and if you do that, I'll give you money. So they're not right, dictating right. your strategy. It's you, the cause, um, who are saying, this is our number one priority right now, and this is why we want you to support it. And when we test donors uh, where they get a specific ask like that against a general ask that says give to our worthy organization or even against a shopping list of everything the organization does, it's that first option, the specific ask, that raises much more money. So it's very important. What's number two? What, what's number two of the list? Number two is over-solicitation. And donors' irritation is rising with, uh, regarding over-solicitation. And you can see an example of that happening, um, well, a couple, in uh, the, uh, the recent election when many donors rushed to the aid of charitable organizations whose federal funding was and is under threat. So Planned Parenthood is an example, the ACLU. <clears throat> when donors um, sit up and really take action, and they're now doing it in disaster relief efforts, of course, the tendency when you get a, um, an influx of new donors or you get your current donors to start giving to you more often and more generously all of a sudden mm -hmm. is to try and take advantage of it by then hammering them with more appeal. Hammering them and that's, more. Yeah, so, that's the so, worst so thing you can do. Penelope Burke, the, the donor whisperer, tell us, mm -hmm. what do donors consider to be an appropriate amount of solicitation? You know, it's interesting. We've asked this so many times, and it's not two or three or four or five. It's not a number in a year. Their definition of an appropriate series of solicitations is this. You can ask me to give again only after you've sent me some kind of a report on what you accomplished with my last gift. And okay. so over-solicitation is tied to lack of communication. And when that problem is resolved, you can you can solicit. So uh, there, you know, someone like the food bank, who could have a successful campaign, raise money quite quickly, uh, and uh, up their food supplies um, just as quickly, could actually report that back to donors in a very short period of time, and then be prepared right. to solicit again. Somebody doing medical research, well, the schedule wouldn't be the same. Right. So the absolute worst thing, and I think that this is so important and it's so insightful for our donors, is right now you're planning uh, to uh, do solicitation and to reach out to your donors this holiday season, this fall. 
And the worst way that you could do that uh, is to ask for general support that's not specific and to have a series of requests. So someone gives a gift, you immediately ask for another gift, you immediately ask for another gift, and you keep hand, hammering them during the holiday season, never having reported on what was accomplished or what was done on the gift just given. And that's the yes. worst way, if you're planning your campaign right now, that's the absolute worst way that you uh, could plan your, your campaign. So yes, it is. walk us back, back off from the ledge. So you're bringing, bringing those successful donors who are listening to you today, um, bringing them back in off from the ledge. The best advice that we could give is plan your campaign to be specific to needs that can be identified. So please give to this campaign that will do these things. Then come back and report to me how you did. So how much was raised, what work was done, what's been accomplished. And now that we've accomplished this with your money, we'd like to ask you to give again. That is the smart way listening to the donor whisperer. It is. It is. It raises more money than any other strategy. So anyone who doesn't use that strategy after today is is wasting their money fundraising because they're leaving money on the table. 38% of donors are saying, I've got more money I would give, but I'm simply not going to give when you ask in a way that I don't want you to ask, and then you don't report when I want you to report. Yep. Now, most fundraisers are very familiar today with donor attrition so that, you know, Two, two out of three donors who make a first gift don't even make a second one. And 90% of donors who started giving five asks ago aren't giving now. So that's a huge loss. And the investment in those uh, to find those donors in the first place is takes a huge chunk of the budget. And when we that's ask right. donors but, but, why they stop giving, because this is information fundraisers don't yeah. get, when they put an right. appeal in the marketplace, they only know who does give and how much. They don't right. know why somebody didn't give. But the number one reason why a donor will stop giving after starting to support a not-for-profit is over-solicitation. Seventy percent of donors say they have stopped giving to at least one cause in the last year because they over-solicited. And another well, so big uh, turn-off is trinkets. This is the best, uh, the best advice that we can give. Is, is to listen to donors. They're speaking through this Burke survey. Uh, they're telling you exactly how to solicit them. So you could turn, because I, I find it very interesting that you're putting on the table, that this assumption and rule, which I, I absolutely agree is out there, every fundraiser understands, listen, there's going to be big attrition. And so therefore they feel like they have to ask more often and ask to bigger lists um, because of the large attrition, what you're saying is if you just stop today and you listen to donors and you actually yep. solicit in a way that donors want you to solicit, you would turn the tide on high attrition and you raise would. more money from each donor because you're actually listening to the donors. Mm-hmm. And the thing about information is that it's compelling. So if a donor is told, look, we're going to put your money in this important program, which is our big priority right now, and then you get a report after the fact, that is inspiring. That gets donors unbelievably excited that they took a chance, they sent some money in, and it's had this good result, and they have played um, an actual, definable, meaningful role in making something good happen in their community or wherever. Uh, And it is that excitement they feel that drives them to want to give again. And then all they need from you is good information and um, a sophisticated appeal that follows in order for them to act on it. And their own excitement uh, takes them halfway down the road to giving again. As a matter of fact, all the time, I see examples in our research of a not-for-profit doing just that, being donor-centered, coming back to donors and saying, remember you gave to us four months ago? Well, this is what we've accomplished. And then donors get so excited that some donors don't even wait to be asked for another gift. They are compelled to give right away. 
same thing happens when they get um, a magnificent thank you letter that's original um, uh, and that speaks to the donor like the donor is a real thinking, breathing, feeling human being, uh-huh. not yeah. you know, not like they're a file number. And when they get right. correspondence that's truly inspiring, they just they just want to give again. They want to give again. Yeah, I, I, I will tell you, I mean, one of those things, uh, uh, as, as my listeners know, um, I serve as president and CEO of uh, the International Donor Advice Fund, CAF America, uh, which has just mm-hmm. grown by uh, leaps and bounds. And one of the stories I often uh, tell is when I first started here as, uh, as CEO, uh, the staff asked me to sign my name for a digital signature uh, to go on donor letters. And I said, no, no, I will uh-huh. sign every donor letter. Uh, and they said, oh, well, that's going to be thousands of letters. And I said, mm-hmm. yes, okay, I will sign. And the reason is, and, and what I always say is, if the donor found it important enough for them to sign the check, they're yeah. important enough for me to sign the thank you letter. And so, oh, thank you goodness know, you do you're that. Sending, well, so and it's made a lot of difference, and we get comments on on how people don't expect that. And I put little notes on uh, on donation on on letters, you know, for sort of extraordinary uh, giving levels, uh, and and it's noticed by donors. But I also mm-hmm. think, and I think to your point, it's also noticed by donors when they get a postcard thank you, or they they get an obvious oh, yeah. you know uh, carbon copy or sort of uh, you know uh, copier. A copy of of a thank you letter, which is impersonal, clearly says, uh, "Listen, we processed your gift, uh, but we didn't even think to thank you uh, properly." Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that I think adds to high attrition. It does. It does. Now I have great news in this survey. It's not all you know cautionary to fundraisers. Some of it okay. is unbelievably exciting, and probably nothing more exciting. Nothing is more exciting than what is happening with young donors. So uh, yeah. all donors are and, and I'm going to ask you, Penelope, uh, that's a great cliffhanger. I'm going to ask you to, uh, to hang on right there. Uh, when we come back from uh, this break, uh, we're going to get into uh, some of the amazing data that you have on younger donors. I think you're going to be speaking about millennials and Gen X uh, donors, yep. which all of our uh, fundraisers, all of our nonprofits want to understand how they can uh, properly engage in some of these donor groups that for a lot of uh, nonprofits just seem to be a big, big mystery. Um, and so we will be right back after this break. Life, it's busy. Wouldn't it be nice to have a central place where you could save what's on your mind? With Google Keep, you can stay on top of your world by quickly and easily organizing everything you want to remember. No matter where you are, finalize door list for Thursday's gig. So when you find inspiration, you can file away your ideas and Google Keep stores them safely across all your devices. And when the time comes, you'll have everything covered. Save what's on your mind. Google Keep. Coming up uh, next on The Nonprofit Coach, uh, we will be back here live on uh, September, uh, let me just get the date here, September 26th. Uh, We're off uh, next week uh, due to travel. But I have to tell you, our producer, Diane Teach, has has, uh, recruited um, just an outstanding speaker here for uh, our show on uh, September 26th. Uh, And and for a lot of us, sort of a little bit uh, emotional, um, and the the speaker um, for us uh, uh, will be Susan Morgan, uh, who is with the Tony Elisher uh, uh, Foundation. Um, and if you if you don't know, uh, Tony, a uh, big voice in the nonprofit uh, sector, um, and uh, uh, throughout um, his illustrious career of over 30 years, uh, Tony was uh, well known and highly respected as being highly inspirational uh, and a very accomplished fundraiser and, and leader. Uh, unfortunately, taken uh, from us uh, far too young, 
uh, far too early, and I'm absolutely thrilled uh, that we will have Susan Morgan uh, here from the Tony Elisher Foundation. Don't miss the show. Uh, that is going to be here live on The Nonprofit Coach on September uh, 26th. And we are back here live uh, on The Nonprofit Coach uh, with Penelope Burke, president of Cygnus Applied Research. Uh, she is the donor whisperer and donor speak uh, through the 2017 Burke Donor Survey. Uh, just before we went on the break, you were teasing us a, a little bit, appropriately <laughs> so, I think, uh, uh, with uh, uh, important information uh, uh, for our listeners today that you have learned uh, in your, your survey, uh, specifically about sort of that next generation younger donors. Um, and uh, you were teasing us a little bit that's exciting. So let the cat out of the bag. What have we learned okay. about millennials and Gen X donors? Well, lots of people think they're not into philanthropy like their parents and grandparents are, but all the trends are showing that they are. Um, they just do it differently. So they're very active. And uh, the problem really for us in fundraising is um, we define important triggers in fundraising differently. And so the triggers that we traditionally use really come down to gift value. And right now, young employed donors, gift values are only about 20% of those made by middle-aged donors and only 13% of the value of gifts made by donors who are 65 or older. Um, plus, there's still an imbalance in communication. So young people's communications preferences like text messaging, social media, they're not adequately developed to attract the volume of young supporters and keep them interested. I mean, we have to speak, use their tools, speak in their language, and consider, give them consideration for gift value because they're labor, laboring under two deficiencies. One is student debt, and the second is underemployment, although I see things happening in the latter, which are very, very encouraging. So let me just give you the facts on what young donors said in our current survey. 51% <clears throat> of them said they gave more last year than the year before. Uh, but then when, of all donors, when we looked at young donors under the age of 35, 69% of them said they gave more last year, which is just an astounding number. And it's important to look at what's happening with young donors in the workplace. So for years, our survey has been <clears throat> monitoring their gift values and their attitudes towards philanthropy so we can see the trend line moving. And uh, underemployment has been holding them back, but the job scene is really changing now. And I've been uh, saying to the fundraising industry for several years that as baby boomers retire in greater numbers, young donors will start moving up the employment ladder, you know, better jobs, higher salaries. And if they're treated like important donors now, those not-for-profits will be first in line for more generous giving when young donors' employment is more stable and lucrative. And, you know, I'm happy to say, well, that time has come. So currently, uh, Gen X and Gen Y, who are born between 1966 and 94, they make up 68% of the workforce, and boomers account for only 29% of the workforce, but they hold most of the management-level positions. However, uh, the oldest baby boomer is now 71, and so this co cohort is well into retirement, and their numbers are increasing every year, the numbers of people retiring, freeing up those jobs, the good jobs, finally. So about 10,000 boomers retire each day in the United States. Did you know that? That's an amazing number. Wow. So this is the year where when we've looked at the trend line on young people's giving, where I've seen the biggest increase in giving and gift value, plus intentions to give more next year. So I can see that they're finally getting those jobs. They're finally taking their rightful, though delayed, place in the workforce and in society and not-for-profits need to take notice of them and give these generations what they need 
in order to want to start giving and then to stay loyal and boost up their gift values. And their gift values, unlike what we've seen in previous generations where donors tend to sort of edge up their giving over time, um, young donors who have been held back in their employment and now are suddenly in a better position are going to leap up the employment ladder faster out of necessity as the boomers retire in larger numbers. And so in one way, yeah, there's fewer of them. Uh, But uh, in one way that means that, um, you know, you don't have to settle for a $25 increase on last year's gift. Um, You can test uh, young donors' contributions in, you know, really interesting ways and see whether you can double their gift values in a short period of time because the potential is going to be there. It's very exciting. Right. Another area that I wanted to, and I don't know if this came out in in your survey, but I think that the information that you've received probably can reflect on this, is a a report that came out uh, regarding donor-advised funds um, and Mm. the use of millennials uh, and Gen X donors as it relates to um, giving through donor-advised funds um, and baby boomers giving through donor advised funds. And, and clearly right now, just as we see in the general giving population, more baby boomers are using donor advised funds than a millennial and Gen X. But, but one of the things that, that it was, was mentioned uh, is that as baby boomers uh, advance in age, um, many of these millennial children um, have, are being named as successor grant advisors. Yes. To establish right. donor advised funds, so it's so the the rapid growth and over the last decade, the fastest growing uh, form of philanthropy has been money into donor advised funds and gifts coming out of donor advised funds. And we now have Fidelity uh, donor advised fund being the largest charity in the country, uh, Cap America donor advised fund growing very rapidly. So this 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 sort of institutional um, giving through donor advised funds. Um, not only are millennials and Gen Xers um, creating their own donor advised funds and giving, but then becoming successor grant advisors, I believe that this, this has to become a, a very important part of both the education and the solicitation uh, from nonprofits is to learn how to work with donor advised funds, which is working with a donor who is an advisor to a donor advised fund. And, mm-hmm. and I think for a lot of charities, that's that's either too big of a mystery or it has become sort of very scary because they get confused with the fact that they can't solicit the donor advised funds directly. But in fact, standing behind any donor advised fund is an advisor and potentially the children becoming the successor advisor. Mm-hmm. And we did a little a preliminary research on donor advised funds in this year's survey. I say it's preliminary. Often we'll investigate a new topic, ask a few questions with the intention of exploring it in more detail in a future survey. But to, speaking to your very interesting point about young people inheriting, we found that among the motivations to establish a donor advised fund, Uh, our donors in the survey who actually have one or more of these funds, saying that uh, 16% of them said knowing my estate would continue to give after my passing was a big deal uh, for them. And many of them referred to their children. A few of the donors advised fund holders in this survey were the heirs of people who had established that fund earlier. So, yes, it's it's very important. expensive way for donors to be able to establish that sort of legacy of giving than creating a foundation that then has to be managed. Uh, they essentially are hiring the professionals of the donor advised fund organization to manage the process, but again, their children can continue after their life uh, to be the successor advisor, which mm-hmm. immediately mm-hmm. passes on that philanthropic tradition. We wanted to try and address a couple of the concerns that fundraisers who are employed in charitable organizations have about donor-advised funds, um, particularly the fact that you know donors who take out these funds may migrate all their giving uh, to and through the fund and kind of their giving from behind a firewall and fundraisers can't get at them. But that does not seem to be the case. Uh, 96% of the 
uh, fund holders that we surveyed said they still give directly to one or more not-for-profits outside their fund. And so um, if fundraisers just assume that among the donors they have are fund holders, then if they use the appropriate language and acknowledge that some of their donors are fund holders, even if they don't know exactly who they are, that right. at least sends the right signal. So that's right. really important. And I, I think it's, it's hugely important, and just a piece of advice that I would give to all of our listeners, and, and I've shared this before, is if you are a professional fundraiser and you are not asking, particularly your major donors, if they are an advisor to a donor advice fund, if you don't know that information, you're not doing your job. Because the yep. wonderful and great news about a donor advice fund is the money's already been given. They've already gotten their tax deduction. All yep. the advisor has to do is decide where they want to advise it, which could be your charity. So if yep. you have a major donor prospect who says, yes, I'm an advisor to a donor advice fund, you now, to your point and from your survey, need only make the case of what they should give to, not should they give at all, because they already have. So mm -hmm. it's easier oh. for that donor to advise a gift through the donor advised fund because they've, they've already decided to give. They've already gotten the tax deduction. It's just whether or not you as a charity make a convincing case for why they should advise a gift to your charity as opposed to another. Yes, for sure. Only 10% of fund holders said they did not want charities to interact with them directly, which is yeah. really great. So 97% uh, of them are saying, yeah. I have yeah. a fund. It, it, you need to know that because I could give to you. Now, I'm watching yep. our time, and we're, we, mm -hmm. we're down to our, our last 15 minutes. It always goes so fast with you. I always want to have like three or four shows with you. Um, one other big topic in the nonprofit sector uh, is, of course, sustaining and monthly giving, mm -hmm. uh, which we know has, has become – very strong around the world, growing in the U.S. and Canada. What have you learned about this? Because you've been studying this uh, since 2012. Um, yes. Over that five-year yeah. period, what have we learned? And again, donor whisperer, what are donors saying about this type of solicitation? Well, it's, it's mostly good news with a couple of uh, caveats. But uh, to start off, the uh, percentage of our respondents who have at least one sustaining or monthly gift now is, has doubled over the last survey we did five years ago in 2012. So that is, uh, you know, congrats to fundraisers who've really put the benefits of sustaining giving in front of donors, and they have rallied to the cause. Now, uh, once again, Young donors have played a huge role here. Age accounts for much of this growth. 60% of young donors now have at least one sustaining gift compared with only 31% back in 2012. And a lot of that is a result of fundraisers very smartly converting uh, young donors who are giving over the phone and via text message, making single right. gifts that way and converting them immediately into a monthly gift uh, program. Uh, so much so of this is, that's fabulous. Is text, text to give or uh, web-based yep. giving is is <clears throat> where much of the the 60% of young donors who report that it 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 generated or originated via text or online. Yes, it did. And uh, the the one one of the cautions I would offer, one thing I want to say to people responsible for sustaining gift programs is don't worry if your average gift value across the entire program has declined in the last few years. And that's because of the entry of so many young donors whose gift value on average monthly is about half that of middle-aged donors and one-third of the value of a senior donor's monthly contribution. But the, the key is, if you had to make a choice, you're better off engaging young people now and forfeiting a bit on average gift value than not being able to convert young donors. And young donors like this program because, of course, they have limited resources, and it allows them to budget and predict how much they can allocate for um, philanthropy, which is it's very also helpful. A smart fundraiser is, always going, is also going to be smart enough to take a look at the lifetime value of a committed donor. Yes. 
Yes, and you know, we equate, we asked a couple of really interesting questions of committed, sustaining donors because, you know, fundraising is a progressive relationship, hopefully, with a donor. And, and every fundraising program, whether we're talking about uh, direct mail appeals, online um, uh, sustaining gift programs, they should all be fulfilling a role of making money now but also leading the donor ahead to even more generous giving. So we wanted to know whether being a sustaining donor makes a donor more inclined to be willing to consider a major gift or even a planned gift than uh-huh. if the donor was just making one-off gifts. <clears throat> uh, and we found there was some correlation there. It's not huge, uh, but about uh, 25% or so of sustaining gift donors agreed that they would be more likely to entertain uh, a meeting with a gifts officer from an organization where they already have a sustaining gift um, who, who came to talk to them about a major gift or a planned gift uh, than some Which other organizations. Would you agree? I think that the average uh, professional fundraiser would find that to be uh, much lower than they than, than they might have guessed uh, in terms because of the correlation. They're, they're, well, you know what? They're probably looking for that magic 50%. And the yeah. thing about research <clears throat> in fundraising is if you're talking about the type of program like major gifts or planned giving where a minority of donors engages in that program. So let's say 10% of your donors currently give you a major gift by whatever your definition of major is. And then I told you that 25% of your recurring gift donors or your sustaining gift donors would be willing to have a conversation with you about a major gift. That is very good information because it's improvement. And improvement is always what you're looking for. Like if you could push your percentage from 10% of donors who give you a major gift to 15% of donors who, who gave you a gift of that value, your bottom line would be in a whole new place because right. major That's gifts are so much more valuable than uh, a- typical annual fund contributions. That's right. That's right. That's right. So if now, I if I was the director of development, I'd want I'd say to my head of su- the sustaining gifts program, I'm going to reward you with you know a better office or more time off or whatever the case may be, um, or a promotion. Uh, for uh, the more donors you pass through your sustaining gifts program into the hands of the major gifts officers the more you are going to be rewarded, even if that means, and of course it will mean, that the revenue in your sustaining gift program falls because the whole idea is to keep moving donors forward into more lucrative programs. And and that's always the the, the internal struggle for uh, particularly mid-sized to large offices Mm -hmm. is, you know, you work hard to build that sustaining base. Uh, You, in theory, want them to become major donors, but if they leave a really committed donor leaves the sustaining mm-hmm. program, that creates a hole in the, the sustaining program, which is one of the reasons why I suggest that managers of such programs need to look at uh, managing the program as all ships rising together as opposed to yes. sort of a siloed approach uh, that creates internal struggle and therefore not wanting donors to move on to a major gift program. Yes, and uh, you've hit the nail on the head, and I want to emphasize that if you're someone listening to this show and you're the person responsible for executing your, a program, this is not your fault. <laughs> this is a management issue. Uh, it's managers right, exactly. failing to recognize where true value is, and it's you know their job to keep donors moving forward. Right. Penelope, we can't uh, end this show and, and look at uh, giving uh, in 2016 and 2017 without taking politics into account, not that we want to make this a political discussion, but uh, did you ask your donors in your survey about uh, how the changes in administration would, might be affecting philanthropy and what donors thought of that and how that might be changing donor uh, 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 interaction with, uh, with giving? Because that's important information for our listeners 
whether they want to hear about politics having a role in philanthropy or not. We certainly did ask, and it's the first time we had asked questions that, you know, move straight at asking donors about their political affiliation and uh, uh, political motivations for giving. And in some cases, some donors were quite upset with us for asking those questions and saying, philanthropy is not political, but I'm sorry, it is very political. <laughs> and the, the numbers really tell the tale. Yeah, one in three donors who gave more last year did so for political reasons. And looking okay. ahead at their giving intentions in 2017, half of the donors who are planning to give more this year are motivated to do so by politics, particularly coming to the aid of not-for-profits under threat of losing their federal funding. And it, it's absolutely huge. Political, political concerns are also driving <clears throat> uh, the increase in the number of causes that donors intend to support this year. Uh, so that number is up across the board. Though I think on that issue, fundraisers should be mindful of something in our long-term data, and that is that our youngest donors in the survey are adding to the number of causes, and that makes sense. We capture a lot of people in the study who are in their first two or three years of giving, and so they're growing their philanthropy. They're growing gift value, but they're also increasing the volume of causes they support. But when we look at older donors, it's a different situation. And we, when we overlay middle-aged donors uh, on, not on the amount of money they gave, but the, strictly the volume of causes they supported last year, uh, middle-aged donors support half the number of causes of their senior donor counterparts. And we've been doing the surveys for so long that we're now seeing people pass that age 65 threshold and they don't get to 65 and then suddenly double the number of causes they support. The they are taking so, their... So if they were giving fewer, they're still going to give fewer. So oh, yes, we're seeing because a this shift, is a, shift in It's a decided patterns. choice. And when we ask donors why they have decided to support only you know, a handful of causes compared with their parents, they say because that's a smarter way to give, that it costs the not-for-profit about the same to get a $100 gift out of a donor as it does to get a $1,000 gift out of a donor. But the net value on the ground is much better as a percentage of, you know, as a cost per dollar raised. And fundraising cost has become a huge issue for donors, where before mm -hmm. the recession it, it never even registered as an important yeah. issue. But now it does, and it's not going away. So this right. is a big deal. So it, in the future, it will be harder, except in exceptional ex, uh, times like we're experiencing right now with uh, uh, environmental disasters and with political upheaval. You can get donors to suddenly come to the aid of organizations once or a couple of times, but they can't sustain that kind of emergency mentality. It's exhausting. And, uh, you know, no matter how bad the emergency is, people just can't hang in there. And so to actually hold on to more donors requires a much more uh, contemplative and sophisticated approach. So if, I mean, the good advice I can give anyone right now who's benefiting from uh, a, a politically motivated gifts or disaster relief gifts is that um, as, they, as they are receiving these contributions, they, at which, and they're unsolicited by and large, uh, then they should think ahead a couple of years and imagine them talking to one of these donors who, when the emergency happened, the donor raced to the phone or to the computer or, <laughs> or whatever and made an unsolicited right. gift to help the situation or alleviate the problem. Well, and now the organization is yeah. yeah, now the organization's still asking and the donor is going to want to know two years ago when I gave you that unsolicited gift, how did you make sure you used it to alleviate the problem you were experiencing? The problem. Don't keep so, coming. Yeah. Uh, Penelope, I'm watching the time. We've got uh, 90 seconds left, so uh, please make sure that we leave my uh, donors uh, or my listeners with uh, a way to reach you. 
definitely. Well, first of all, the results of our research study called the 2017 Burke Donor Survey, 110 pages of great information, recommendations, charts, and graphs is located on our website at cygresearch.com. Very easy to migrate to the page where you can get that report. Yep. And we posted that uh, it, link uh, yep, on Facebook. It, the U.S. Uh, study is published and ready to go, and the Canadian study will be ready within the next two weeks. Terrific. Penelope yep. Burke, uh, a, a star in the nonprofit sector, the donor whisperer, uh, thank you for being my guest here and bringing us the important insights that you have found from the 2017 Burke Donor Survey. Thank you for being my guest today here on The Nonprofit Coach. Ted, thanks to you and your listeners for being so interested in evidence from donors. Absolutely. We can't get enough of you. Come back soon. Great. Bye for You've now. been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.